Could you please turn with me to Psalm 74? Psalm 74, we're using the English Standard Version. Uh, If you've got a smartphone, that'll come up too. As we begin our second year of summer in the Psalms, I was laughing at the fact that last year when we did summer in the Psalms, it rained for the first eight sermons. Every Sunday without fail, it would be raining. And I introduced summer in the Psalms, and it just became a running joke. Uh, What a pathetic summer. Um, But here we are. Here we are, and it is sunny. So, we will be looking this morning at Psalm 74, which is a psalm that throughout church history has been read and preached the week or a couple of weeks before Christmas. The original setting of the psalm is a response to the Babylonian exile, and specifically the Babylonian destruction of the temple in Jerusalem. This is not a happy or a joyful text. If you came here looking for something happy and fun and lighthearted, you're not getting it. Perhaps next week, as we consider the birth of Christ in Psalm 98. It's hard for us in 2017 to understand what an immense event this would have been in the Jewish mind. If we think of the sources of national pride and identity for the Hebrew, we need to think first of the Exodus. God delivering the Israelites out of slavery in Egypt. Moses giving them the law, the Ten Commandments, and all the laws that went with it, and then leading them to their own land, the land of Canaan. And that Exodus is referenced over and over and over, and it is remembered constantly throughout the Scriptures. It is a a huge source of what makes a Jew pointing back towards Egypt. But probably the second source of national pride for the Jew would be the temple. The temple was a, a visual depiction of the reality of the presence of God in the middle of his people in Zion. It was a huge thing. And it, it makes sense as we've been going through the book of Acts that the first Christian martyr, Stephen, One of the reasons why he was stoned to death was because they said that he was against the temple. God's presence was with his people there first in the tabernacle and then later in Solomon's temple. God is present in the middle of his people and the people were grateful and had pride in this as a result. And so the destruction of this temple by the Babylonians was perhaps the greatest possible horror for the Jew. Your source of national pride collapsing. I was trying to think of a New Zealand version of this, and it would, I I couldn't, this is far worse than the, forgive me, this is far worse than the All Blacks, 
Sir Edmund Hillary, Peter Snell, and everyone else you can think of on an airplane crashing in Mount Erebus. That's what it was for these people. It was an enormous, enormous event. And I don't mean to say that to be funny, because it, that's what a shock this would have been to them. And multiply that further. This destruction of the temple calls into question whether God is truly going to be faithful to his people. It calls into question whether that faithfulness demonstrated in the Exodus would continue. And even beyond that, it went back to Abraham. Would God really keep his promise to be God and protector to the descendants of Abraham? That is what is being considered here. That is what it would have felt to these people. An enormous, enormous Let's read our text. We'll read the whole thing. Psalm 74. A masculine of Asaph. O God, why do you cast us off forever? Why does your anger smoke against the sheep of your pasture? Remember your congregation, which you have purchased of old, which you have redeemed to be the tribe of your heritage. Remember Mount Zion, where you have dwelt. Direct your steps to the perpetual ruins. The enemy has destroyed everything in the sanctuary. Your foes have roared in the midst of your meeting place. They set up their own signs for signs. They were like those who swing axes in a forest of trees. And all its carved wood they broke down with hatchets and hammers. They set your sanctuary on fire. They profaned the dwelling place of your name, bringing it down to the ground. They said to themselves, We will utterly subdue them. They burned all the meeting places of God in the land. We do not see our signs. There is no longer any prophet. And there is none among us who knows how long. How long, O oh God, is the foe to scoff? Is the enemy to revile your name forever? Why do you hold back your hand, your right hand? Take it from the fold of your garment and destroy them. Yet my God is king from on old. Working salvation in the midst of the earth. You divided the sea by your might. You broke the head of the sea monsters on the waters. You crushed the heads of Leviathan. You gave him his food for the creatures of the wilderness. You split open springs and brooks. You dried up ever-flowing streams. Yours is the day and also the night. You've established the heavenly lights and the sun. You have fixed all the boundaries of the earth. You have made summer and winter. Remember this, O Lord, how the enemy scoffs, and a foolish people reviles your name. Do not deliver the soul of your dove to the wild beast. Do not forget the life of your poor forever. Have regard for the covenant, for the dark places of the land are full of the habitations of violence. Let not the downtrodden turn back in shame. Let the poor and needy praise your name. Arise, O God, defend 
your cause. Remember how the foolish scoff at you all the day. Do not forget the clamor of your foes, the uproar of those who rise against you, which goes up continually. This is the word of the Lord. A good psalm for Christmas. It really is. It's a great psalm for Christmas. Do we see how he begins? He says, Oh God, why? Why, oh God? A deep existential crisis. The psalmist knows that God is angry with his people. They know this is his judgment. It had been promised. The people had not listened to prophets like Jeremiah, calling them to repent and return to the Lord. This question, why, has a quite simple answer. The people have sinned. However, behind this question is so much history, it is so much theology, it is so much scripture. Israel, in verse 2, are called a, a congregation, a worshipping people. A people who are called out to live and to worship their God. It's also called a tribe. A congregation and a tribe. And this is where it differs from the New Testament church. And that this is a tribe, this is a nation which has ties to a specific land. And it says that it is a congregation and it is a tribe that has been purchased and redeemed of old. We could say that God has, in a sense, paid for this nation by bringing them out of slavery in Egypt and bringing them into their own land during the Exodus and the conquest. God gave them identity. God gave them laws. When God gave Israel the Ten Commandments, He didn't just go up to a people and slap laws in them, do this. That's an important thing. He first defined the relationship and he said, he says at the start of the Ten Commandments in Exodus 20, he says, I am the Lord your God who has brought you out of Egypt. You shall have no other gods but me. He says, this is what I've done. This is my goodness. God had protected them. God had been king over them. He gave them his word. And he also told them, that he will establish a king on David's throne. And there will be a perpetual, eternal king on that throne, ruling over this people. But here we are. Here we are. With the temple destroyed and the people of Israel being handed over to the enemies. The question, why, O oh God, is really a question of have you abandoned us? Have you abandoned us? Are you just rejecting us completely? The redeemed people are now facing God's rejection. The events leading up to this you can read in Second Kings chapter 25 and a couple of chapters before that and also Second Chronicles 36. You know those parts of Scripture that you kind of, when you're doing the Bible in the year, you kind of start skipping? Well, that's just what this is based on. And you can read them for yourselves. Second Kings 25 is just the, one of the saddest parts of Scripture. 
God had promised Israel a land of plenty. He'd given them a covenant with Moses, and he told them if they obeyed these laws, they would live long in this land of work and worship. It would be like going back to paradise. And if they chose not to, they would be exiled. That's why it says, the fifth commandment, it says, Honor your father and mother that you may live long in the land. And for hundreds of years, the Lord dealt very patiently with them. Specifically, God held the king accountable for knowing the law, which is why the kings had to write their own copy of the law, and make sure that the people obeyed. But few kings ruled justly, and after years and years of disobedience, a young king, his name was King Josiah, gave brief hope that Israel would not remain in disobedience. He gave hope that Israel would once again seek to obey the Lord. But after Josiah, the same cycle continued. A series of wicked kings brought about the end of the Lord's patience. God has a very long wick, but eventually it goes. In swooped the Babylonians under King Nebuchadnezzar. They laid siege on Jerusalem, and they camped around it until the famine inside got so bad that a breach opened up. In verse 3, the psalmist pleads to God. He says, direct your steps to the perpetual ruins. He's saying, God, come down and look here. Come, see what has happened. See the destruction. If you don't know the story, this might be a little bit shocking. King Zedekiah was arrested. The first one to be taken out. His sons, the heirs to the throne, were lined up in front of him and killed in front of his own face. And then his eyes were taken out so that this would be the last thing that he saw. This was his last visual memory. Then in chains he was taken to Babylon. The temple was sacked of bronze and silver and gold worth billions of dollars in today's money. The signs and the banners and everything in the temple that pointed to the God of Israel were removed. And perhaps we can also say that Babylonian banners were put up in its place. The psalmist in verse 5, he uses the image of a forest. Imagine a dense forest with nice trees and you find a good oak tree and you decide to, to, to cut it down and turn it into furniture. That's not what the Babylonians did. Instead of just chopping one tree down carefully, the Babylonians hacked. Said they swung axes and hatchets and hammers with reckless abandon. And after they had ripped everything up, torn down columns, broken wood, stolen everything there was to steal, everything of value, they burnt it to the ground. Now that temple did not encapsulate God. 
but it was a visual picture of his presence in Israel. The inner temple took seven years to build. And then the middle courts and the outer courts, the whole thing, it took 20 years to build the structure. 20 years of continuous work. And in moments it was just all completely flawed. There's all houses of prayer around the city. There were no synagogues at this time until they came back from the exile, but all houses of prayer on the outskirts of the city, those too were burnt down. Everything was just destroyed in moments. Other parts of scripture compare the Babylonians to lions that just came in and destroyed everything. This is not a natural disaster. It has the images of a tsunami just coming in and just completely wiping everything out. But this is a spiritual disaster. Not only has all the signs of God's presence been removed, but verse 9 tells us that there are now no prophets. No one brings the word from God. Hear these words from Lamentations chapter 2. The Lord has scorned his altar, disowned his sanctuary. He has delivered into the hand of the enemy the walls of her palaces. Her gates have sunk into the ground. He has ruined and broken her bars. Her king and princes are among the nations. The law is no more. And her prophets find no vision from the Lord. In addition to all this destruction, in addition to this complete annihilation of national identity, the worst thing is that God is completely silent. And so the question is raised in verse 10, How long, O God, is the foe to scoff? Is the enemy to revile your name forever? Yes, Israel is guilty. The people have sinned. But the psalmist brings up the fact that the Babylonians are no better and they despise God and they seek to tear down all memory of His goodness. The chosen people and the enemies of God both deserve God's wrath. And so what the psalmist does, his beautiful words in verses 12 to 17, he calls to the memory of God's power and his work of creation. Goes right back to Genesis. And he repeats God's great works up to him in a prayer as a plea. Verse 16 says, Yours is the day, yours also the night. You have established the heavenly lights and the sun. This destruction did not take place because God was not powerful enough to prevent it. That's important. This is the God who created the world. This is the God who divides the sea from the land. This is the God who put the stars in the sky. This is the God who gave us the moon and the sun. 
This is the God who controls the strongest creatures on land and in the sea. This is the sovereign God of heaven and of earth. So behind this question, why O oh God? The reason for this is not because God is not powerful enough. The God who brought Israel out of Egypt is strong enough to save them fully. And so the psalmist makes a plea for mercy. Verse 19, Do not deliver the soul of your dove to the wild beast. See that picture? Israel like a dove. Don't feed the dove to a wild beast. Remember your people, it says, defend your cause. And if we can get to the grounds of this plea, it's found in verse 20. Have regard for the covenant, for the dark places of the land are full of the habitations of violence. There's a theme of darkness around so many psalms like this one. There's a theme of darkness flowing through here, and it makes complete sense when we consider what's taking place. Scripture constantly refers to darkness as the place where wrongdoing occurs. Darkness provides a cover for evil doing. Most people, when they break into a, a house, they try and do it when they cannot be seen. Darkness always provides a cover for evil doing. Chaos and disorder, when you think of them, they're dark. If you think of some kind of apocalyptic wasteland, I don't believe you would be thinking of a picture of a sun in the sky and birds chirping and it just being nice. It's dark. The sins of Israel and the rage of the Babylonians have removed the light of the presence of the temple. That sacred place of, of worship has been burnt down into ash. The sacred time of worship that they do each day, and especially then on the Sabbath, is no more. Sin and anarchy really do reign. And everyone hides their face from the presence of God. Except the psalmist you're calling out. That ironic priestly blessing that we, we know, make your face to shine upon us. No one says that anymore at this time. One commentator said, This event is a return to the dark state before creation. And he went on to say that this is what sin and rebellion against God does. It takes us away from order and light and life and joy and it takes us back. And so we see who is called out to. Who alone can make light shine in this dark place? Surely the God who created and controls all things. The psalmist turned to the only place where he knows there is hope. Remember your covenant, he says. Remember your covenant. Which covenant? 
Have you thought of that? Which covenant would he be referring to here? Remember your covenant, God. The one made with Moses? No. Because it is a violation of that covenant that made, caused this mess in the first place. Israel don't need more law. They've got plenty of law. They can't keep it. That's why they're facing exile. They need grace. They need a promise of grace. The psalmist pleads to God to go back even further and remember the Abrahamic covenant of Genesis 17. God promised Abraham and his descendants that his descendants would be as many as the stars in the sky. And through his offspring, the whole earth will be blessed. I know we talk about this a lot, but it is important and it's the very grounds of this people's hope. God promised Abraham and his descendants the very land that they're about to lose. And all of this was rounded off in Genesis 17 by saying that he will be their God and they will be his people. God would be their protector and their king. The psalmist is pleading to God, remember that. Remember what you promised in the midst of this darkness. Show your strong arm. Don't forget us. as I wind this to a close now. What does all of this have to do with Christmas? What does all of this have to do with the coming of Christ? You know that when John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whosoever shall believe in him shall not perish but have eternal life? You know that that's not one of those verses that you just go, Well, duh. The world is beautiful and lovely place. No, it's not. And the context does not bear that out. Because in verse 19 of John 3 it says, This is the judgment that the light has come into the world and the people love the darkness rather than the light because the works are evil. Verse 20, For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his work should be exposed what is the destruction of the temple apart from that being carried out suppressing the truth of God the clear evidence of a good God a holy God a just and merciful God it is man saying I will rather be king We must say there are glimpses of goodness in the world. We must say that. But it is because God has created it. God has put his image upon people. There remains, however, hurt, suffering, murder, violence, abuse, brokenness, war. Pick up a newspaper. Look at a website, a news website in this country this Christmas. Things are not right. 
And we ourselves cannot look at Psalm 74 and think of this as just some time of primitive ignorance. Each one of us has likewise participated in this rebellion against God. Where God has said no, we have said yes. We each are as prone to hide from God's presence as the Babylonian who burns down the temple. Is that not true? Isn't that not true of yourself? I know it's true of myself, my own life. But God does not forget His promises. He told Abraham that his descendants would be as numerous as the stars in the sky. Jesus' birth was marked as those magi saw on their camels heading towards Bethlehem by one giant, big, bright star in the sky above Bethlehem. One star that blotted out all the other stars with its brightness. John John chapter 1 tells us that Jesus Christ is the light who has come into a dark world. He is the singular offspring of Abraham through whom the world will be blessed. Through his life, death, and resurrection, he wins a land greater than Canaan that Israel were promised and then lost. A new creation without any of the darkness of the old. You know that here in Psalm 74, the temple might have been burnt to the ground. That picture of the presence of God removed. God had a better plan. Emmanuel, God with us. This true king born as a Jew in a manger. That baby is the evidence that God would in fact remember his covenant with Abraham. That he would keep his promise. And so we must say that Jesus has come once 2,000 years ago. And he has begun ushering in his kingdom. He proclaimed the kingdom of God. And he ushers it through his spirit, changing the hearts of men and us living under the reign and rule of this king. But all this darkness that we see, all these problems that we see, is evidence that that kingdom is not yet fully here until the king returns. The world bears the effects and the scars of sin. The creation still groans. Darkness has not yet been fully driven out. Let us see that. Let us feel that. Let us hope for deliverance. Whenever you see an image of brokenness this Christmas, whenever you have a relationship that you really don't like, they happen at Christmas tables, don't they? These things will be no more when the King returns. 
Sam closes with the people who deserve to be judged. Let's put ourselves in that. Yet standing before God and saying, Lord, God, deal with us, not as we deserve, but as you have promised. Not as we deserve, but as you have promised. Let that be our cry today. We come to the supper, let that be on our hearts and on our minds. A desire to send your righteous king and save.